Hello, and welcome to Slate Money Criminals, a little mini-series on some of the most interesting financial criminals of history. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. As ever, I'm here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hello. And Elizabeth Spires of The New York Times and elsewhere. Hello. Today, we are talking about John Ackerbley Mieser, who single-handedly skipped around the world, UK, London, Ghana, Korea. Did he make it to Korea, Yaboka? He did, yeah. He it was did. A, it was a short trip. Um, and, and just swindled people out of millions of dollars. Um, and this is a wild story. We are here with the woman who is quite undoubtedly the world's greatest expert on this guy, Yapoka Yibo. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Introduce yourself. Who are you? I'm a writer, and my first book is called Anansi's Gold, which is the story of John Ackley-Mazer and this remarkably strange con. It's a great title, too. And Nancy, of course, being this sort of um, central figure in Ghanaian folklore, who's just this mischievous, kind of like spidery type figure, right? Yeah. And and Blay-Mazer totally fits into that um, trope. We are going to talk about his ability to swindle money out of people about those people's ability to kid themselves that it's all real and to join forces with him even when they know it's all based on lies about the racism at the heart of this about the way that he was basically piggybacking on the cia in the cold war it's a crazy story it's all coming up on slate money criminals Okay, so Yapoko, let's start just with the book. What What is the book about? What is the story of the book? Anansi's Gold is about a man named John Acker Blameser, although that was not his real name. And between the 70s and the 90s, he conned hundreds of people out of hundreds of millions of dollars. And it was a classic inheritance scam. He said he had been related to or a confidant of like the story changed quite a bit depending on who he was talking to but he was a confidant of Ghana's first president um president Kwame Nkrumah and that on his deathbed Nkrumah told him this insane secret which is that before he was deposed in a coup he realized that people were after him so he took millions upon millions of um Ghana's wealth in gold and money and diamonds and stashed it all in Swiss vaults. And it was John Akablemaze's job to liberate this money and give it back to the people of Ghana. But there was so much wealth sitting there in Switzerland that he could do whatever he wanted with a portion of it. And so if you helped him deal with the administrative costs and greasing officials and making it all happen, he would give you returns of 10 to 1 or 100 to 1. Or you would become a giant ship and magnate in Ghana because you'd win lots and lots of government contracts. My first problem is, I don't even know what his name is. I've been mentally thinking of him as John Blay, but like you give him this like longer name through most of the book. 
How like when? How old was he when he got his like longer name? Um. So it sort of progressively got longer and more grand as he went along, and <laughs> <laughs> as he portrayed himself as a more and more sort of important, prominent person. Um. So he was born John Colerablay, and then he added Mazer, and then Doctor. And then a uh, name to reflect the part where he became a traditional chief and it sort of started to go on and on and on. And he basically added all these like names, almost like flourishes, to stand up the idea that he was incredibly wealthy and had been a confidant of Ghana's first president. And this was, of course, a complete lie. He was born into relative poverty. He made up everything. But some of it was true. He really did become a tribal chief at one point. He really did become incredibly wealthy. Like, he did drive around in Rolls Royces and stay in the grandest hotels. Um, and he just did it by lying to people. And this is this is the um, the amazing subject of the book. So before we get into, like, how he managed to do this... I think we should probably start with just a very quick overview of the con, which I think is probably familiar to most of us who have email addresses. Yeah, it's the standard, like, a Nigerian prince needs your help freeing a fortune and we'll give you a part of that fortune if you give them some money up front. It's a, it's a classic inheritance scam. And the victims of the scam, the people who paid him money in the hope that they would see tenfold returns. Um, they really, they, they were, they started in the United States, interestingly enough, in um, in Philadelphia, but then it went global. He found a bunch in Korea. And importantly, there was a non-negligible number in Ghana, right? Yeah. He managed to charm Ghanaian officials. Um, it helped that he had been in prison in the 1960s, briefly, with a lot of Ghanaian politicians who had been thrown in jail for corruption <laughs> <laughs> by, by Kwame Nkrumah. Some of them were absolutely innocent, were thrown in jail just because they posed some kind of threat. But he was incredible at watching people and mimicking them and learning from them. And so had been surrounded by prominent people who had literally founded the country, and he soaked them up their stories, their mannerisms. And then when it was time to con people, he either rode on their credibility or their contacts. So everybody assumed that if he knew all these like big, big men and like the former attorney general and several businessmen, that what he was saying had some truth to it. At very late in the book, you, you talk about how the investors start, you know, catching on to the fact that this is probably a con and they all sort of wonder, well, why can't we just sue the banks directly for this money? Why do you think that didn't occur to them in the beginning? In the beginning, they were very much convinced that this was a sort of something for nothing deal. The returns they were promised and the business they were promised was so great. A few of them were convinced that they had one over on Blaymazer, like he didn't fully understand what it was that he had access to. Um, <laughs> lots of them had staked the future of their businesses, like this 
presented the future of these companies. And a lot of them were also just in too deep to start questioning it. And right the way through by Mesa and his sort of American business partner, Robert Ellis, promised that like the money was coming quick. You'd get it in weeks or months at, at the most a year. But then sometimes it was like tomorrow. And he would he would like fly all of the investors in to some like, you know, town in Switzerland or something and be like, it's happening at four o'clock today. And you're like, you know it's not happening at four o'clock today. And it seems to me like he the story of this book and the number of draw on the floor moments that where he's just like doing like painting himself into a corner that you're like, how on earth is he going to get out of this one? Um, and he's doing things like bringing all of the investors together. As, as Elizabeth says, like eventually they wind up talking to each other because they've got no one else to talk to. And he's like pretty elusive. But like why, you know, he's doing these things like introducing them to each other, which just, again, seems completely batshit if what you're doing is a is a con and a scam. And, and like, that kind of sheer boldness is one of the things that, un, that really, really fascinates me about this guy. I think that worked because he kept people kind of siloed. So, like, all the investors from Philadelphia would know each other. All the investors from like the Ghanaian government would know each other. All the Ghanaian businessmen would know each other. All the people in the UK would, but they didn't really cross over many times. So a lot of the times on like one of these occasions where he's like, it's coming tomorrow, fly to Switzerland <laughs> and stay there. They would see other groups of people sort of rushing around and assume they were the bankers when they were just like another set of investors. <laughs> <laughs> You compare the belief, um, I thought this was such a good uh, analogy, because, you know, he'd tell these people the money's coming tomorrow, then the money wouldn't come tomorrow, but they would still believe him that it was coming at some point. And you said it was like um, those doomsday cults that believe the world is going to end on such and such date. The date approaches the world doesn't end, but somehow they still convince themselves that the world is going to end. It's just on another day in the future. And it just sort of goes on and on. The belief doesn't diminish at all. No, the the doomsday never coming and the money never coming seem to <laughs> strengthen people's faith in in yeah. and in the Oman Gun Trust Fund. And I know for some of them, they just stake too much of it, like too much in it. So they had to make it work. Yeah, people were really invested in it. And, and I think that's one of the real lessons of this book is that when you're conning people in this way, eventually, pretty quickly, actually, surprisingly quickly, the people you're conning become your biggest defenders rather than and, and you know he he winds up getting tried in Pennsylvania and all of his victims are the ones writing to the judge saying please be lenient on him like we need this guy he's incredibly important and that dynamic of using your victims as a way to um to help yourself, like not just from, it's, it's not like he, he just kind of took their money and absconded. He took their money and then kept them close and used them over and over again for various different purposes. Yeah, they would fly into the office in London to wait for something to happen. And while they were there, they'd be on the phone calling other people to encourage them to invest. Or Nixon's former attorney general, John Mitchell, apparently spent a lot of time calling investors who wanted to pull out and convincing them to keep their money in. This happened with like one very prominent Ghanaian investor. He sort of 
managed to also just use them to prop up his like weird theater of things that confirmed that he did indeed have access to this money. It's almost like a pyramid scheme in that way where it's like everyone on the pyramid is kind of working to scam someone below them, except in this case, no one's benefiting really except um, Blaine yeah. Lisa. The, the the thing that strikes me is that it's it he really is playing on and you're very good about like the um, racist assumptions that allowed him to do this that everyone was just so um, convinced that that like Africa is this sort of dark and primitive continent full of gold and wealth that you know. Um, and, and corruption, of course, like it makes perfect sense that there would be billions of dollars stashed in a Swiss bank account, like obviously. But like at the same time, there's this kind of affinity scheme, right? That he's like driving around in Rolls Royces and staying in grand hotels and friends with all the right people. And so he presents in the right way, just as like, you know, Elizabeth Holmes, say, like presented as a Stanford dropout who had a bunch of important people on her board. And that helped persuade everyone that she was for real and not just making shit up. You have a great scene also where, you know, as, as the plot starts to unravel, the investors show up at one of the luxury hotels that he's staying at and they try to confront him. And in that case, you know, he's not expecting them and he fakes a heart attack and, you know, calls in this private doctor who sort of launders the whole scenario and makes it seem real. And this is a tactic that he uses several times. Do you think, and, and you note that the investors um, had told him that they weren't going to pay the luxury hotel bill, but then they realized that paying per night in a hospital is going to be more expensive <laughs> for them. So they just sort of let them, they let him keep faking heart attacks. Uh, at that point, do you think they're all pretty aware of what's happening and they're just afraid that he's going to die on them and they'll never see their money again? Or, or was it? do you think they were still convincing themselves that this could work out? I think it was half and half. I think the, lots of them were convinced this was genuine, but that he had perhaps expensive tastes that they no longer wanted to bankroll. And a lot of them were aware, especially once there were multiple investigations and people out and out told them they considered him a crook, but they were incredibly sort of, they were like willing to participate in the crookery as long as it meant that they got their money back. Yeah, I mean, we definitely saw that in um, in the Madoff case as well. There were a lot of people, not necessarily the majority, but a significant minority of Madoff investors who were convinced that he was you know, insider trading, basically, or that he was, you know, making his returns in illegal ways. And they're like, great, this is awesome, because it gives me an edge. And I can make, you know, I can get my great returns these ways. Like, investing with a crook is something that is quite attractive to people, because they're like, well, crooks can make a lot of money. Yeah. And also, like, for a lot of people in a lot of scenarios, investing in crooks pays off well, like, as long as you get paid out early, and you're not still around when it gets messy. Even if the the scheme he was alleging was true, you point out, even if it's tr- true that the the first leader of Ghana took all the gold out of the country and stashed it away in Switzerland, the the suggestion that 
investors from the U.S. should be the ones to get that money back and take it away from Ghana is pretty horrendous. Yeah, Even if that scheme was true. You're something it, which on its face is extremely damaging to the Ghanaian people. And you're like, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm down. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I want. Let's, let's recolonize. Like, let's do it again. Let's take all the money from Ghana again or something. So I think that... People were fully aware of this. There were there were a group of investors, especially in the beginning, who were more about sort of supporting like newly independent African nations and helping to build their economy. Mm-hmm. They were mostly African American, and they were mostly like tied to sort of the justice acts aspect of taking the money back. But for everybody else, he would sort of put on a great show, like. Even towards the end, like he would turn up dressed in his full finery and covered in gold, looking like a very, (laughs) very exotic, very wealthy person. And sometimes he wouldn't say a word and that was enough. People would just like finish the story for themselves and invest. And I think a Mm -hmm. lot of them also just thought that he was like a rube and he didn't fully realize that the money did not really belong to him and he probably did not have the ability to give it to investors. And I think the idea from the beginning that they had one over on him strengthened their faith in it. There is something very 70s about the whole thing, right? Like, like when we yeah. look back on the 70s, like, nothing about the 70s makes sense. Like, there were all those hijackings. Those didn't make sense. Like, the 70s was just a really <laughs> weird decade. And I do kind of wonder how, like, uniquely 70s this was or and, and versus, like, how much is, of this is him doing, you know, a con that is ages old and as you say it goes back to like you know the the age of privateering in the you know 16th century or whatever like you know and the, and that human nature never changes and that these kind of cons will always be with us i spent a lot of time trying to figure this out like why would you think this was a thing and so i went back and tried to figure out what would happen if you went into the library in like 1974 and asked for just information on Ghana or information on Kwame Nkrumah. And mostly what you would find were sort of like some incredibly, like there was a a Time magazine cover where they had a South African leader being like, oh, there's no way they can run themselves. It's appalling. And that was the entire tone of the piece. And then you would find a ton of American coverage of the coup that deposed President Nkrumah they like the military and the police who had actually enacted this coup and who were thought to have been funded by the CIA among like other groups would throw these press conferences and they get the political prisoners he had thrown in jail up to say that they personally saw Nkrumah take briefcases of money. He had gold taps, a gold Cadillac, poems all over Africa, many, many mistresses, just endless outlandish lies that turned out after like I think by the 1970s Ghanaian like investigators and judges had figured out that none of that was true but all the people who had like spoken at those press conferences had themselves taken massive sums of money and hidden them away in London and Switzerland. And plus there was like a cold war going on right and and Krumer was like a pan-African 
you know, Russian-backed, kind of communist kind of guy. And there was a feeling of, like, you can profit from this war. I thought it was maybe not uniquely 70s. Um, What was really interesting about his scam was the way he sort of manipulated, and you say this throughout the book, the way he sort of manipulated history. And, you know, it was this revisionist history of... I hope I say it right, the revisionist history of Nkrumah and who he was um, playing off that and changing the story of reality in order to create his own story so that he could bilk people out of tons of money. And I feel like that's still happening in all kinds of ways now. Like you see in American politics, there's a constant sort of like reframing of history. So to sell your own story, to to really to scam people <laughs> out of money in the case of maybe former presidents right now um, who are trying to sort of reshape the narrative and, um, yeah, and essentially change history, you know, at a fragile time and really take advantage of instability to sell their own story. That's kind of what happened with him, it seems like. It's entirely what happened to him. And obviously he got very, very good at, like, using current events to his advantage. So if the money never arrived, it was because there had been a coup or government officials were feeling wary. But also for this, like, at one point he ran for president. He was an incredibly prominent figure in Ghana. People thought he was actually a millionaire. People would see his motorcade of, like, very expensive cars driving through town all the time. He managed a football team that was incredibly popular and made up slash stole a chant that people still use to this day. So a lot of people (laughs) thought of him as fairly credible even then. So the stories he would tell, especially about Nkrumah, seemed credible as well. And they dovetailed with the stories from abroad and the stories that people who had been jailed by Nkrumah and hated him quite a bit, told as well. And so all this sort of reinforced his con and his stories. He was running for president of Ghana and his whole thing was like, if I win, (laughs) this solves all my problems. And it really was like, oh my gosh, that is what Donald Trump is (laughs) doing. Like he's facing all this legal trouble. And if he wins, if he gets to be president, he can make it all go away. I was like, this is the same thing. And and the really amazing thing is there's another parallel there, which is that... um, he was eventually disqualified from running for president because of his various, mm-hmm. like, you know, curriculum vitae, basically. Just as right now there's this whole attempt to disqualify Trump on 14th Amendment grounds and saying, like, well, because you, you know, are an insurrectionist, you're not allowed to run for president. Um, and it's this, it, there are so many parallels. It's absolutely amazing. It's scary. <laughs> yeah. When I first started looking into this, everything about it seemed outlandish and then like I guess the news and history started to happen and it seemed less and less outlandish which was actually more and more disturbing what one of the (laughs) one of the uh other parallels is the if you look at the um indictments against Trump and and the various reporting that has been done about what happened after the 2020 election um it was just complete chaos in the White House and around Trump. No one really had a clue what they were doing. And I really did get the impression from reading the book that there were there was never a scheme 
There was never a plan. He was making it up as he went along. The whole thing, like, sometimes he'd wind up in jail. Sometimes he'd wind up in a hotel suite. Sometimes he'd make up one line, but sometimes he'd make up another line. And, like, everything was just, like, I'm just going to play this, you know, I'm just going to improvise the whole time. And, and like, do you think that, like, in his mind some way, he had, like, a multi-year plan of, of like, I'm going to do this and this and this and this, and, like, I know how this is going to end? I don't think there was, just because everything, like you just said, was so haphazard. Uh, I think in the beginning, his assumption was that he would get to a certain like level of prominence and surround himself with enough people that he could just go legit and run a series of companies. Like even if he could give investors their money back, he could give them like government contracts or something else that would allow him to seem like become who he said he was. And then they just kept taking more and more money from people. And so by this time he was running out of, if he was running for president, it was completely just out of control. There was no way they were going to get like, they started with like 82 million was the first disbursement he said. And then it was like twice that. They just, they just had no way to make that happen, even if he did go legit. At every stage, he was scrambling to make something work. And the people who knew him and were around him when these things were happening were like, he was just incredibly calm and cool and level-headed about all this chaos. And he could, on a dime, seem like he was in charge of what was happening and that it wasn't chaotic or bizarre. Um, unfortunately, towards the end, he just kind of ran out of road. Yeah, the, the, there's a running theme in the book about like his diplomatic passport and how he needs a diplomatic passport to to, to pull this <laughs> off. And you're like, dude, like you are you're basically defrauding the Ghanaian government here, and they're giving you a diplomatic passport. Like you're not exactly you you're not exactly you know painting the Ghanaian government in <laughs> a particularly like honourable light here, Nkrumah notwithstanding. I mean, he. That was kind of, I think, the frustrating thing for a lot of officials at the time, because there were plenty of people who remembered who he was in the 60s, who had met him then, or people he had screwed over in the 70s. Like, there was a government official he had told people was going to help him stage a coup. Like That person was like still in charge of investigating <laughs> him. <laughs> and so there were, there were plenty of people who were like, this does not work on the face of it. Or people who actually knew Nkrumah and his family and, and knew that he had died with an incredibly modest estate. It was basically royalties from his books and nothing else. And people knew how his family were living. And they tried over and over and over again through like various government like investigations in the media, like going specifically to officials to be like, what the hell are you doing? You know, this man is a crook. There was a whole trial where he was exposed as a crook. And none of that mattered because like there were enough people in power right the way through from like the 70s to the early 90s who thought that even if even like a tiny bit of this was true, even if it was a lie about Nkrumah, but the money was dirty money from somewhere else, it didn't matter. Yeah, you also mentioned, though, that he, he would make enemies of pe you know, people who knew that he was a con man. He would somehow 
figure out how to charm later yes. and befriend them. <laughs> how, did, how did that happen? Yeah, this, this was also very strange. When I did speak to people who had known him and worked with him, they were still very fond of him. People who would like... There was... Um, one of the sources was a police officer who had been assigned to follow Blaymazer around and keep the diplomatic passport in his hands. So Blaymazer would travel on his own like regular person passport and this police officer would be the one to present the diplomatic passport whenever he needed it to prove who he was to like the banks or whatever. And people told me pretty early on that he sort of, it was like he went AWOL and they didn't hear about him. And then when they did hear about him, it was that like Blay Mazer had like bought him clothes and was paying him a salary and had like turned him. And <laughs> I went to actually talk to this former police officer and he runs like a, a gorgeous hotel in um, Tema, which is like the port city near Accra. And so I was just sitting in his office um, waiting for him to finish some stuff up so he could, like, we could speak. And in one corner, there was like, it was like high up on like a sort of like a cupboard or like a really pretty dresser. There was like a globe up there and next to it was a gold frame picture of Blaymazer. <laughs> Because that was those were the glory wow. days, man. Traveling first class, you know. It was like here's a crook, but at least you know he like it was a, it was a glamorous glamorous crook. Gla yeah, <laughs> he was a glamorous crook. But this guy was a police officer, and he was supposed to be not taken in by stuff like that. And he absolutely <laughs> was. And like, yeah, I just I was stunned by how many people even this this far down the line were easily charmed by him and thought of him really, really fondly and who thought of him as, like, a kind, giving person, even though he had personally defrauded them. I feel like we cannot underestimate how charming a rich person or a, someone who appears yes. to be rich can be. You know, he had everything he had, the Rolls Royce he had, the nice houses he had, the lavish hotel suites, you know, great parties. I mean... I think at the end of the day, people just like that. Yes. They just want to be around that of, and like hope Gatsby it effect. rubs yeah. off. Yeah. But also like they got to live like he got to live. So like he'd take yeah. over a Florida hotel and everybody would get a gorgeous room. And then the flip side of that is that he, uh, and I think this is probably unique to, to this series. Like, you know, if we talk about, say, Martha Stewart, then clearly like she is used to a certain lifestyle. She goes to prison and that is definitely like the low point of her biography and she just doesn't like it there and it doesn't help her at all um whereas with blamiza it, it's just like he is constantly in and out of prison he is constantly being jailed in like multiple <laughs> countries and he's he's like not seemingly particularly upset about this and just uses it to he gets out and then he he is quite proud of it and he uses it to his advantage and he's like yeah my opponents jailed me and that proves how um noble my cause is because you know these evil opponents wanted to jail me and they were briefly successful but now i'm out and i will get you know i will fight for truth and righteousness and that ability to um to sort of do that kind of jujitsu move on imprisonment 
was wild and I don't see that very often. Yeah, also it's like, would they have let him out of jail if he was actually a crook? No, absolutely not. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, he actually also, I think because of his first stint in jail in the 1960s and all the remarkable people and stories that he encountered, when he went to jail again after the 1979 trial, he got really, really good at charming the prisoners. Like, at one point, he bought them all haircuts and they brought some barbers in. He, yeah. like, improved the sanatorium, which is, sorry, the like the prison hospital bit, um, because it's where he ended up spending most of his time. But, like, I remember seeing a source who said years later that, like, Nkrumah had brought in, like, window coverings and fridges and just like giving the prisoners a great time. And so everybody <laughs> who was in jail there, including political prisoners, thought of him really fondly. He just he just knew how to function in that situation and knew how to curry favor in surprising places. So much so that like the things he did that were kind and generous sort of outlived him as much as the scam did. It's, it's like it's like that scene from Goodfellas, right? Where like they're in jail, but they're like cooking up a yeah. storm and they're having a great life. You're like, garlic. okay, <laughs> garlic, yeah. <laughs> so, so that's a really good point. So his his scam, he didn't. It never fully unraveled. The only reason it came to an end is because, I guess this is a spoiler alert. But <laughs> spoiler alert. I'm sorry to spoil your book. He died, um, <laughs> and that's how it kind of ends. But I mean, even after he dies, people still are trying to get the money out of Switzerland? Yeah. Do people still believe this is going on? Is and, and still going people on? don't even believe that he's died. Like, they're like, no, you know, yeah. this is another one of his, like, get out, you know, like, wily plans. Yeah, even, even everybody who was, like, part of the organization and the really, really, like, overly involved with their everyday investors weren't sure he had died, like, some of them heard he'd been taken to Switzerland and put in a cryogenic chamber. Some of them heard he was in, like, Germany in hospital and then disappeared. And uh, I think that helped people continue to run the con because everything about the way it ended, at least with him, was so hazy. Um, so after he died... Um, the doctor, who would regularly help him out of, like, sticky situations by confirming that he had indeed had a heart attack. And um, <laughs> his brother, who had taught Wei Meizu Tai Chi um, as a way to, like, improve his health, um, they sort of took over the organization and sent cease and desist letters to other investigators. Sorry, to other <laughs> investors and investigators to... I guess, cut them off. And then there was like a huge probate trial in Ghana where the doctor won and then there was an appeal and um, the judge in the appeal called the original judge just like an insane crook. (laughs) (laughs) And that was just, I found like little pockets of people all over right now still perpetrating the fraud, still calling up new people and old investors. So you spent a bunch of time talking to his kids. How how do they, like, feel about him at this point? I think it was complicated, especially (laughs) them, because, like, 
it was different for his wife, who eventually started to see the contours of what was going on and could plan accordingly. But like to his kids, he was like generous and warm and a parent most of the time. Obviously, one who wasn't necessarily around all the time, but still someone who was a lovely parent. And yeah, I think he had he had the same effect on his actual children as he did on a lot of other people. He just seemed like a very nice person who was great at charming people around him. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the Madoff saga ended with, like, his two sons dying, basically. Um, you know, it, it can be truly devastating. These things can be truly devastating for your family and can be the thing, ultimately, that, you know a certain type of person will be like, well, this proves that crime doesn't pay because it ends up like just immiserating your family and who would ever want that. But I, like, I'm like, i not sure that tidy sort of moral works in this case. You know, he, he really did come up from nothing, had this great lifestyle, brought his kids up in a sort of arena of luxury that they would never otherwise have had. And was warm to them and gave, and as you say, was a, actually a relatively good dad. And I, I kind of want to know, you know, now that you've written this book and published this book, like on a scale of one to 10, how much of a villain was he? Like the, God knows there's no shortage of like great villains in, in sort of 20th century African history. Like where, where does he stand on that scale? He didn't kill anyone. So with, with his family, it's it's worth remembering that like as soon as he died and was on house arrest, it got complicated with them and all that luxury was like snatched away. Like uh, his daughter talked about having to learn to like clean for the first time um, because they no longer had help. So I think that was probably incredibly distressing and jarring. So with Blaine Mazer himself, there were lots of incredibly difficult to stand up rumors and stories about what else he might have been doing. People suggested that he was dealing drugs or like laundering money for organized crime, as we spoke about earlier, or generally doing more stuff than just defrauding people to keep the fraud going in part. Um, but I, I think. The people who knew to a certain extent he was a crook and still sort of lent him their credibility, not worse, but they like have a, a lot more responsibility than it, uh, it seems initially. Like they were willing for large sums of money and also prospective large sums of money to make everything he said seem real and mm. even though they knew a great deal of it wasn't and they were willing to sort of actively and with like a lot of gusto perpetrate these lies about President Nkrumah and about the way Ghana was run and about even just about the idea that Ghana had been consistently ruled by crooks um, which I think has been very warping because it, there are also countless officials who do like a very diligent job in very, very difficult circumstances and right the way through 
had been telling people he was a crook, had been pointing out that this is not how money worked or how banking worked and were kind of roundly ignored. He was a villain in in terms of how he got, yeah, the powerful people to support him and like keep up his web of lies and make Ghana more corrupt. Yeah. He corrupted a country and he perverted its history because Nkrumah, I mean, I didn't know much about him until I read your book, but like he was a good guy. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> like it's it's horrible that his his legacy was warped by this con artist and um, the governments that backed yeah, him. But it wasn't just Lay Mesa telling lies about him. It was also the people who staged the coup. It was the US yeah. government, it was the British government, it was the New York yeah. Times, it was it was everybody who ran with these outlandish stories about why President Nkrumah was deposed. Like he wasn't alone, he was just probably the one who used them who was the best at using all of this to his advantage and sort of because of that began perpetuating it. Because yeah. because for everyone else there were like geopolitical reasons to perpetuate yeah. these lies and he didn't have any particular interest in you know he, he wasn't working for the cia as far as we know he he was just out for money but like he had that tailwind of all of that cia misinformation and disinformation yeah it really highlights just how fragile history is and what we know about the past yeah. is and how all those stories and narratives are shaped by whoever's in power <laughs> yeah me too the like most disturbing part about researching this would be that I would find a reference to a source. And a lot of the time when I'd go looking for this, like once even at the British Library, I found the publication and it was the right date. But somebody had ripped out the pages that I was looking for, which I thought was terrifying. And I went looking for the report of the National Reconciliation Commission in Ghana after the transition to democracy. And it took, it had been scrubbed from the internet and it took absolute ages to find it. This, like, key document where people wow. finally got to tell the stories of these absolutely abhorrent things that happened, especially during the leadership of Jerry Rawlings. And it was just impossible to find. And this happened over and over and over again. Books that should have been readily accessible had, like, vanished or were in really like far-flung places and I remember asking someone about this and they were like yeah people actively disappear sources um to help launder their reputations and the fact that they could do this even at like academic libraries even at the British library even with something as important as an, <laughs> a reconciliation commission was just mm-hmm. it was terrifying mm-hmm. Right. The whole point of a reconciliation commission is to bring the truth to yeah. light and expose it to sunshine. And then, yeah, and then that's not even. And yeah, when people are literally way. writing books, you're like, well, once it's a book, it can't be that hard to find. It's like, well, no, nope, actually, it really can. Actually, it can. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thank you very much for writing the book. It's a great uh, story. And thank you for coming on Slate Money Criminals. It's been absolutely wonderful having you here. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure talking to you all.